You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. We have all faced this dilemma at the end of a long day. Do you make dinner or do you take the quick and easy route? In my family, if you've been following along on this podcast for any length of time, you know this is a huge point of contention, especially now since I I do not have the metabolism I used to have and my husband still has the metabolism he had as like a 13-year-old. So dinner can be kind of like, no, I don't want to get something, you know, like fast food. And he'll be like, no, fast food is delicious. And of course, if he orders fast food, it's hard for me not to have some. Gobble makes a huge difference because it is literally impossible to argue that it will be more convenient for us to order in than to do gobble because gobble meals take like 20 minutes or less, 15 minutes or less usually, and they only use one pan. It's really simple cleanup. And, you know, it's that kind of food that is delicious street food type stuff sometimes, which can you can say to yourself, oh, I am, I am somewhat cheating on my diet by eating street food, but it's actually really good for you. Chili Colorado with sweet corn sopes and pinto beans, Korean bulgogi beef lettuce cups with sweet potato noodles and kimchi. Uh, and then this looked really good. Oh, chicken tinka street tacos with avocado and poblano elote salad. Those sound delicious. Those sound as delicious as anything that would come from, again, like the food truck that unfortunately exists pretty much in our backyard every night uh, during baseball season. But gobble, see gobble, we just can do that instead. Uh, They have an army of sous chefs to do all of the hard work for you. They pick the highest quality ingredients. They do the peeling, the chopping, the marinating, and the making of the perfect sauces. You just pick out your meal. There are all these different options, including family favorites, gluten-free, dairy-free, vegetarian, kid-friendly, and they also have lunch. At the end of the day, or perhaps in the middle of the day, you'll have a home-cooked meal ready in just 15 minutes. And like I said, most meals only take one pan, so cleanup is super easy. That's why Parents Magazine voted Gobble the number one meal kit. You're going to love Gobble, too. And my listeners have a special deal available to them. Six meals for just $36 plus free shipping. That's dinner for two for three nights for just $36. Only available if you go to my special URL. That's gobble.com slash friends. Six meals, $36, free shipping, gobble.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. It is also a show where occasionally I get to talk to my friends, and this is such an occasion. I get to talk to my friend Adam Savage. If you are a reasonably curious person, you have probably heard of Adam Savage. He was a co-host of Mythbusters. Today, he pilots Tested.com and the new Savage Builds on the Discovery Channel. 
If you're a regular listener to the show, however, you may wonder what he's doing on it. What does building alien spacesuit replicas and repeatedly crashing things into each other have to do with politics or uncomfortable conversations or the differences between people or raising up other voices besides straight, cis, liberal white dudes? We're going to tackle politics explicitly in this conversation a bit later, but I want to tell you why I wanted to have Adam on. Because one of the major themes of this show is how to do better as a person and in the world. And in his new book, Every Tool is a Hammer, whether he knows it or not, my friend Adam has written about those exact things. Now, it is also about fabricating replicas of Hellboy props and building scale models of his own home. And there is a chapter largely devoted to different kinds of glue. But the book is really about how Adam has applied the lessons of making things to life. And I walked away from it knowing a lot more about glue than I ever expected to, but also feeling more optimistic than I felt in a long time about my own ability to get better and maybe the world getting better too. We will also be hearing from Rebecca Nagel about the newest addition to the Crooked lineup, This Land, a podcast documentary about two murders and tribal sovereignty in Oklahoma. Coming right up. In a weird way, like your book, in terms of like all the books I've read for this show, I found it one of the most like personally affecting Wow. I know. Like, isn't that strange? Like, I mean, I would say, like, white fragility was one of them. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, in terms of, like, how can, what in this book can I take and use in my life? Right? Um, I love hearing that. (laughs) So, definitely white fragility. Definitely this report that that I mentioned a lot on the show, which is called The Oxygen of Amplification, which has to do about how journalists cover white supremacy. Um, like, oh, wow. That made me rethink like the way that I talk about white supremacy. I oh my recommend God. It. It's all about framing right now, isn't it, too? It is. And it's also about uh, – uh, you should read this report. I think you would, you would find it as illuminating as I did. Uh, it, its main point is that when mainstream journalists talk about white supremacy, they tend to focus on the supremacist and not right. on the people affected by it. <laughs> you know? like right. And, and they tend to just sort of assume that everyone agrees that white supremacy is bad, right? Like, right, right. Rather than kind of driving home. <laughs> the costs, yeah. Right. This hurts people. And also, like, that there's no way to cover white supremacy with irony. Like, that that— <laughs> <laughs> Not a surprise, perhaps, if you think about it. Uh, so unless no. you— um, so I'm going through. So there was a white fragility, um, oxygen amplification. Also, so you want to talk about race was another one that was really affecting to me. And then this one, I found myself going through it and like scribbling in the margins, like what can I use here? Like how can I use this in my life? And mm. that made me think about, like I have in my head a very clear reason why I wanted you to have, uh, why I wanted you to come on my show, even though my show is. People might not think about you and me as in terms – well, you and me as friends are fine. We are friends. But as you as a perfect fit for the show, like I have in my head a, a very clear reason why I wanted to have you on. I am curious, though, about what you might see as why – as how you fit into kind of the scheme of what I try to do on this show. Like do you have a sense? Oh. 
I'm not, it's not yeah. a quiz. It's not a quiz. It's just more like, I'm just curious. Cause like, no, no, that's, ex- I, and I, it's a great question. I, I actually, I, one of the goals was of, with the book was to be radically forthcoming with all of my spilkas, my social anxiety, all of the reasons in which, all the reasons for which I suffer as much as any maker of anything to get to finding my excellence, to finding the path through to achieve the problems that I've set out to solve, and to normalize all of the ways in which we get in our own way so that people could understand there's nothing that insulates me or anybody else from this, from the, from the vicissitudes of the process. And one of the things, one of the reasons I find actually your podcast to be one of my safe spaces is while it delves deeply into politics, it's very specifically about the emotional journey of the people talking about politics and about reaching across to see each other. And to me, I, I've, I've been, as I've been traveling around the country on this book tour, the questions from the audiences are astounding. Deep process questions from 12-year-old girls and 75-year-old men. It's totally amazing. People are hungry to talk about this stuff. But one of the things that I realized as uh, a lot of these appearances did, d- descend into some political discussion is that I keep realizing that if we make it out of this particular time, and I mean either environmentally or politically or both, if we make it out, it will only be because we've really been able to see each other and understand that there are experiences that are different than ours. And I really, really appreciate in your in this podcast how much you attempt to see past your own frame to understand who you're talking to and see things from their point of view. I think that our reasoning uh, has dovetails, to use a very maker type of metaphor, um, pretty well. Because one, the first thing that I thought of when I was like, okay, so how would I explain to someone like why this is relevant to my interests <laughs> is that my show is about doing better, like yeah. being a better person you know, manifesting change in the world yeah, and being kind to yourself and others while you do it. And one of the things I found revelatory about your book for me was the kindness aspect, hmm. about the kindness you've, you've learned to show yourself and you've learned to show others. It's really true. I mean, sorry. I mean, it's really true that it's it's a singular goal to me to be kind to myself and to be to spread that around. Um, there's not enough of it. <laughs> this doesn't feel like there's enough of it these days. I, I want to actually sort of backtrack a little bit, though, because I think that we should make clear that this is all this is while it is this book is about all the things that we just talked about. It is. Yes. It is also about about making shit. <laughs> there is a chapter <laughs> in which and I kept turning the pages thinking this is going to be over soon. There's a chapter largely about glue like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, there's but, a, <laughs> like, I will tell you, originally, I thought the book was going to be a lot more like the chapter on glue. <laughs> I learned things about glue. It's true. Um, and I, I, you had a very good explanation, which we could take into metaphor about the difference between like a mechanical connection and a chemical connection. And like gen- generally, I think you prefer mechanical connections, right? Because you can undo them. and Yeah, uh, like outs. Yeah, they're intelligible. Also, I feel like they're intelligible on a very 
surface level in a way that adhesives are not. Like, right. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. The the reason two things are stuck together is clearly right there in front of you, not something some layer hidden between. Right. Uh, but it is, so it is also about making things and you have like a lot of schema and drawings and you advocate drawing. So I kind of want to start, I, I, I definitely project myself onto the entire audience and I'm sorry, audience. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, I, I personally am a more ideas head driven person. Like as much as I try to balance that, but I, I live a lot inside my head. And so let's just go literal. Because okay. I, I think that might be useful. Let's talk about why someone would make something and what you might learn from it. Ah. Oh. <laughs> so for me, this is such an amazing, wonderful. Ask, okay. Can I, can I, like, so let's do, but I want to be real specific. I want to go real literal. Okay. okay. okay? So um, should we pick out a thing, like a good starter thing for someone to be like, okay, you've convinced me I should try to make something? Or. Mm. Should we be like, no, no, no. Part of it is the journey of trying to trying to find a thing to make. I think it is the second one because okay. to me, the impetus to make something, to bring into being something, a dress, a poem, a table, um, comes from a point of view. And in my experience, when I research into something that's interesting to me, there comes a point at which I have a point of view about that thing. And I have come to learn through the process of making Mythbusters and the process of my life that when I have a point of view, it actually means I have something potentially to contribute. And so I think of this in this sort of grand scheme that when we make stuff, we are recapitulating our culture through our bodies. And that is making us part of that culture. But like I'm, I'm getting too big and high, uh, <laughs> abstract there to bring it back to what to make. To uh, one of the th- b- drums I bang repeatedly in the book is about finding an obsession, finding mm-hmm. that thing that you can't stop thinking about. And so many times we subsume those things because they're pointless or who cares about My Little Pony or whatever reason we have made up in our heads that the thing we want to make is dumb or not worth our time. In my experience, when we dive into those things, as weird and strange as they are, and I also will submit that all hobbies are weird, every last one of them, even fishing, it's hard (laughs) to justify. Uh, But when we dive into those things that we're interested in, we find ourselves in the process that to make anything excellent, you have to have you have to achieve some level of self-awareness in order to confront your own vagaries, your own biases at the workbench or at the table or at the writing desk. So the first thing someone would do is just figure out what you want to make. And that should tell you something about yourself. If you because if you, I maybe I'm putting cart before the horse here, but like I, I really do feel like as like I said, I was thinking about what I could make as I was reading mm-hmm. your book. Like, I'm, I'm inspired here. Like, I agree with all the things that Adam is saying about the things you learn from making, right? Um, which are some pretty concrete things about, like, organizing your workspace um, and cleaning up after yourself and sharing credit and all those really um, just tangible, specific to making a thing kind of guidelines. Mm-hmm. But it— Part of my journey reading your book was like, what would I make if I wanted to make something? What would I make? He's convinced me. Um, I did come up with something, and I sent yeah, you. Well, <laughs> I sent please, you. Please, by all means. 
I sent you the drawing. <laughs> oh, this this wonderful backpack. Yeah. So maybe we can use that as an example. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of. I'm. 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 I'm definitely. Uh, I have not planned well for this interview. Maybe, but <laughs> <laughs> which is my thing you're supposed to do. I, I disagree entirely, actually. Um, so you sent me this wonderful double spread of drawings that you'd done just before we got on the air. Um, and, like, nothing pleases me more than seeing this kind of thing workshopped out of someone's head onto paper. Um and you have very specific ideas about a backpack and how it can serve you and the ways in which it can lay out its contents and be useful to you. And like that whole mental process to me of examining one's own needs, one's own patterns and thinking about a way to serve those, to figure out an object that can fit those, those all of those set of parameters that you want to solve. To me, there's that, that's an inherently... There's something really important going on in that process of self-examination. Even though it seems like you're, it might not be an inspection of the emotional frame, it really is to me. Oh, believe me, finding the perfect backpack has been an emotional journey. Like it's- <laughs> I totally get you. I'm obsessed with packs and boxes. I have literally my, my, my shop assistant was like, we really have to start to get rid of some of these things. <laughs> I have – no, seriously, like I was – Again, I don't know. I don't want to hijack the interview, but with my own personal obsession about backpacks, <laughs> although we've talked about how back, how obsessions are important, I guess. But like, I really feel like I've spent my entire life looking for the perfect way to carry my stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. There, there's probably a metaphor in there somewhere <laughs> about emotional baggage. I don't know. But like. And there's nothing that quite fits for me. Like, what am I learning and what would I learn if I actually tried to do this? Oh, so, right. Um, I do think that there is a grid perfectly onto emotional baggage, as you say, <laughs> or, or or the emotional frame, because I feel like the workbench personally is where I get a safe it's almost like a virtual reality of reality at the workbench. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a reality in which I get to pretend that the universe has order and I get to enjoy the delightful fiction for a period of time that I have some measure of control over the disorder of the universe. Mm. And, you know, in in putting together something like this to go through the process of uh, playing around with mock-ups and sizes and maybe mocking this up in paper to kind of get a feel for how big it needs to be, what type of laptop, notebook, pencils it's going to hold, and then moving from that frame into uh, perhaps pinning it together out of muslin to see a you know, rough idea of how, how it would work when it's made out of soft materials, going on to the sewing machine, which is one of my favorite tools in the world. And I learned to use a sewing machine in home economics in the in the 70s, back when they had that in schools. <laughs> and one of my favorite things about a sewing machine is that it's actually the same thing as carpentry or as welding. Mm-hmm. You're you're joining planar forms under certain rules and conditions. And so for me, in the same way that we have we may have one experience while we're buying coffee uh, that moves us and is actually analogous to something else that we're dealing with. Uh, there's applicability across the board with these problems and the ways in which we solve them at the workbench. I want to just react to one thing you said right away, mm-hmm. which I think plugs into to a lot of 
uh, questions listeners may have, which is it must be nice to be able to have that space where facts matter. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> that was one of the first things I thought about reading your book is like, wow, like this world that he's describing that's just circumscribed by the by the workshop is a world in which you can someone can say, I think this thing is true, X, Y, Z. And you can like both of you put something together that tests it. And then if it doesn't work, both of you, the other person doesn't go like fake news. <laughs> right, right. Um, so uh, two things in my reaction to that. First is I loved writing the chapter on glue and realizing that my disclaimer at the front was these are just the glues I use. You may have totally different <laughs> results with all of them and feel completely the opposite. And those are all totally valid. Um the other thing that was funny is, as I said, I, I thought the book would be much more like that chapter on glue. But as I started to write into the things I knew about, um, I felt very uh, improper pretending to be an authority on a lot of the things I know because I am I am surpassingly mediocre at almost all of my skills. My, my personal skill is in joining multiple skills together to hide enough crimes to achieve an object that, that looks done. Uh, <laughs> but it's not like I'm an expert carpenter or welder or machinist. I can just do each of those things well enough to get myself across the line, which is why the book ended up being more philosophical than actually, uh, you know, within the physics of making, even though there's plenty of that. Uh, both the publisher and I thought that there would be more uh, until I started writing the thing. And but is it frustrating to live in that world where, where facts matter and then also live in the world where we have arguments about caravans that don't exist and <sighs> global warming, you know, is a hoax? It's it's really, really uh, it's debilitating. Um, and and there's an interesting thing that that happens in a shop is that the shop engenders certain behaviors. And I didn't realize this until in the early nineties, I was working as an assistant for an artist named Chico McMurtry and Chico's whole life was working and sleeping. There was no socializing. And at one point he left for a show in Czechoslovakia and I stayed in his loft in his studio for two months. And for that two months, I got to really understand how the studio itself didn't want me to do anything in it but sleep or work. There was not even a couch for socializing. There wasn't a coffee maker or anything. The studio wanted you to be working or to get the hell out. And there is a, a, a in my per, in my shop, I almost never look at the web or at my phone the entire time I'm in my shop. It's like I need to go sit in a specific chair in my office in the shop to go check into the world because to do it within the shop just doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I find that 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 dichotomy of the the surety of what's happening on the workbench versus these crazy disagreements in this post-fact reality of like, I don't know how we get back to some norm. Oh, man, I was really hoping... <laughs> Honestly, my, part of my interest in talking to you was like, so <laughs> how do we how do we myth bust the world? You know, oh. like there's it must drive if it drives me crazy, it must drive you extra crazy. Like the way just to be super specific, the way that Trump talks about that fucking wall, like this must yeah. be maddening for you. It's 
it, it's so crazy making. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of Neil Stevenson's new book, Fall, mm-hmm. um, which is about a consciousness being uploaded uh, to a digital frame and the moral implications. But he also um, he casts forward about 20 years into the future when America is now Ameristan and the ways in which he paints this near future where entire swaths of the country just will never know the certain facts about the world because to figure them out within the unending stream of bullshit is impossible. It's very chilling. So when I see these discussions go back and forth about, you know, if you want to lessen abortions, the fact that the data exists on the best way to lower abortions and it's sex education and it's free contraception, free contraceptives. And it's uh, it's, you know, providing health care and it's provide providing abortions, lowers abortions. It's an unbelievable thing, but it's totally true. How can we be having a discussion about this without understanding that if that is your stated goal, there is a way to get to that goal. But we can't even have that discussion. Okay, so it drives you crazy, too. And we, we basically, maybe there's not much we can transfer here. Maybe that's one exception to, like, a lot of the really helpful and beautifully metaphorical advice in the book, which so, again, like, I really personally struck me. But if you're looking for this is how you convince your in-laws that they're wrong about the wall, maybe not the book. Okay. Moving you on. You know, actually, I, <laughs> I will say that the more that of late, I'm a very non-confrontational person. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a chaotic household, so I am excellent at being the reed that bends. However, in the past couple of years, I have become much more uh, upfront about confronting uh, men in my life, specifically when they when they espouse something that uh, is heavily problematic and needs some bit of correction, despite the, the 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 social difficulties of doing that, I I I have found myself being much more radicalized over the past few years. Huh. And have you approached that challenge with some of the habits and frames of mind that you've brought to making? Um, I have. Let's see. That's a really good question. Ultimately, I guess I, I was confronted with a guy who at a dinner a few months ago who somebody was talking about dick pics and this guy popped in was like, well, there's actually evidence to support that they actually work because blah, 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 blah. And I let him say his piece to the table. And then off to the side, I kind of grabbed his elbow and I said, listen, if you're going to talk evolutionary biology in terms of male and female relationships, you should really understand the type of people in whose pool you're jumping into in order to understand who is <laughs> primarily making those arguments and to what end. Because uh, what you've said isn't actually science. You've said the results of a single study that I know about and is actually not incredibly well cross-supported. So perhaps you could look at it at this way. And here's a place to actually do some research. Like, I took it as axiomatic that he wasn't trying to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. I was trying to be kind about the about the correction, but I also, like, I just, you know, I I was surprised at myself for having a distinct point of view that I needed to step in at that moment because that's not very much like me. If I can, I, so a couple of physical metaphors immediately jump to mind. One is going with the grain, mm-hmm. like not trying to like change the whole thing all at once, right? Like not right. like being like, I think you're a dick about dick pics. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I'm going to just, you know, tell you you're wrong. Um, instead, you kind of like, 
went went with him, you know, like joined up next to him. Um, And then also like um, maybe it's a little bit of a lesson about taking a small step rather than one big step. Right. Like, yeah, it's easy. You work is more effective when you think about each small step rather than try to jump to the end. Although I know your personality is actually much like mine. I would really like to jump to the end. I would really. I am so impatient. (laughs) Which. Do you know, in fact, I realized the other day, I am so impatient about getting to the next step, i.e. progressing through a transition as fast as possible, that every morning I drink two cups of coffee because my local coffee shop ritual serves it in these 12-ounce cups, and I like a lot of coffee in the morning. And I noticed that as I'm finishing my first cup, if I take a sip and there's just like a half a sip left, I like, I can't stop thinking about getting rid of that half a sip to move on to the next cup. (laughs) And who cares? And yet there's me with the transition of like, I got to get rid of this transition. I got to move on to the next cup. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. They recruit them. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. F-R-I-E-N-D-S. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But even if we try really hard and eat kale salads and drink green smoothies, we are still most likely not getting all of the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. Enter Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food, all in their clean, absorbable forms, no shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm than good to your body. They're just two easy-to-take capsules, provide nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health. I like Ritual because it is aesthetically pleasing and that kind of it's clear and uh, the psychology of that works for me. I do feel like somehow it's more pure and better for me because I can see it. And the best thing about Ritual, as far as I'm concerned, is that they taste minty and they are gentle on an empty stomach. I can just take them first thing with all my other meds uh, and I don't have to worry about, you know, getting something down before then. Sometimes first thing in the morning, you just want to do your routine and I have my little pills and a little dish on the counter and I can just do that. And it starts my day off in a really cool way. Like I have done something good for myself. They have everything you need from D3 to omega-3. Ritual's essentials for women help fill the gaps in a woman's diet. And for obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. A subscription to Ritual is easy to start. It's easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all those essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight, however. 
but you can start overnight. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during their first three months. Fill the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off for your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm really glad you brought up the example of challenging, you know, a, a dude about his dudeness. Um, because you do have a chapter on tolerance, which my fellow, uh, bleeding heart, liberal social justice warriors might perk up their ears and be like, oh, so here's the political chapter, but it's, it's actually not, it is, it is pretty literal. It is about, (laughs) (laughs) it is about the tolerance of metals, of, uh, fastenings, um, and, and the reasons you might have a loose and close tolerance. Um, which I got right away. Like, just actually, you can tell me if I'm understanding correctly. But like, a loose tolerance okay. is like uh, things rattle around, right? Yep. Like, there's like yes. the screw. It's, if you imagine screwing two things together, the holes are not perfectly necessarily aligned. The screw is not like the perfect size to fit in the two holes. It, right. It, there's a little of what we would call slop. Yes. Yes, and so it rattles around. But if there are sometimes you want to do that because you might want to be moving really fast. Um, you might have something that uh, you might value speed over getting it right, really exact. Also, I like how you pointed out that, um, like, let's say, uh, non-high-end cars, like workhorse cars, are built with loose tolerance and not oh, yeah. tight tolerance because I guess the idea is that you will be fixing them or not will be fixing them, but like they're just going to get a lot of wear and tear. Yes, so something with loose tolerance can handle more abuse because if you have two cylinders that fit perfectly inside of each other, the tiniest ding on the inside one will make it not fit with the, with the one it's sleeving into. But if you have two with a loose fit, it can handle all sorts of dirt and crap and stuff and still actually slide in and out. Right. So like a pickup truck is going to be built with loose tolerance, right? I Yeah. In, in general, yes, I think it, I think it would be. There's also different kinds of tolerances within an engine. Like, you know, diesel cars can handle a lot more crap in their system than a normal gasoline car, et cetera. But then the other thing that I loved about that chapter was that I realized that all those ideas of tolerance grid upon ourselves as well. They do. And let's just go to tight tolerance because obviously okay. it's the opposite of loose tolerance, but um, it's interesting as well for its own reasons. Like uh, you said, like high-end sports cars have tight tolerance, right? Everything fits together perfectly. It Absolutely. runs perfectly. And it means you have a tremendous amount of efficiency because all of the energy in the system is only going where you want to direct it. So if you have something that's rattling around, a rattle is energy being expended, not necessarily in the direction you want the power to go. Like a purring engine. That's why why a purring engine is a sign of like probably something that's that's all fitted together perfectly, right? Like that sound Indeed. of like an engine just like going very well, right? Exactly, exactly. And the quietness of the purring means that there's less vibration going to the engine itself and more just going right into the powertrain. Absolutely. 
So there's a real kind of obvious way that those things map onto, I think, human behavior. Um, and one of those things is like knowing, I, I would guess, like when to have loose and, and tight tolerance for yourself, right? Like yeah. um, when to let yourself rattle around, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and when to screw yourself tightly, <laughs> as it were. Um, I mean, that's was that was that was one of the things that I learned from that. Right? Was was a little bit about the when to be gentle and when to and actually maybe gentle and not gentle aren't the right ways to think about it. Because one of the things I liked about your book and the ways that the metaphors that you use is that they're very value neutral. Like loose tolerance is just a thing. Tight tolerance is just a thing. Like right. It's not that. If you are if you are someone that goes through the world with some rattles, like that makes you a worse person, right? Right. No, 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 not at all. Um, do you know about the the? the uh, my wife and I love this frame that there are people who are that there are two kinds of people in the world: maximizers and satisfiers. Do you know about this frame? Mm-mm. Okay, so a maximizer is someone who thinks when they look at the lunch menu above the sandwich shop, oh my god, I got to get the right sandwich. There's only one sandwich that will satisfy me today. What is that sandwich? Is it a BLT or is it the pulled pork? And they they labor over the decision. A satisfier looks up and says, I'm hungry. Oh, they have hot dogs. Great. I'll have one of those. Now, do these people marry each other? Because I feel like... <laughs> Yo, yeah. No, that's exactly my wife and I. She's the maximizer. I'm the satisfier. <laughs> there, that's a way we're different. I'm a pretty much like I have to have the exact thing that suits me right now. Um, right. Oh, but so so within that, to me, there are places in which even a satisfier like me who's willing to take the good enough solution, the the question at the bench, the question at the workbench with anything that I'm making is what are the hills that I that I do feel like dying on? Where are the places in which I am going to push myself past my comfort zone to get this thing exactly how I want it to be? Uh, oh, wow, I built it out of aluminum, and now I see that it really needs to be made out of steel. Okay, I'm going to go through the process of buying that piece of steel and machining it laboriously over a bunch of hours to get it right. Because even though I've already made it and it's close, I want it to be even better. That's, that's to me, that place where when we decide where our tolerance lies, there's the tolerance of the work, and then there's also yeah, that tolerance of the self-forgiveness about what we're what we're willing to what we're willing to let go as we're moving forward. And I I appreciate that real value neutral kind of way of thinking about our own uh, tolerance and what we can tolerate. But I this is also the chapter where I was like, oh, Adam is a straight white guy. <laughs> oh, tell me, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> because... I was thinking about you have a very great message about the ways that we need to be, you know, gentle with ourselves and kind of like, you know, have have some loose tolerance about your own ideas and whatever. And I'm like, there are some of us that can't afford to have loose tolerance. Right. Yeah. Like they're basically straight white guys get to move through the world rattling around if we're going to keep using the metaphor. Right. Like their first and second and third iterations people have patience for. Um, they keep getting second chances. Right. Whereas people of color, you know, disabled people, women, um, non, you know, gender conforming people, like they kind of have to get it right the first time every time. Or right. the consequences are harsh. 
or they have to be you're thinking You're totally that right. Way. I had not I hadn't considered that frame and of course you're you're 100% right. I mean, I'm not trying to be critical. It's just like one of those things like No. Cuz you do uh, reckon with privilege in the book. But this particular thing, I was like, man, there are some of us that have to be screwed together real tight. <laughs> <laughs> I um I I take I mean, one of the other things I love about about this podcast, Anna Marie, is your your willingness to conf- your willingness and eagerness to confront your own biases <laughs> and your own li- where your frames are limiting your ability to see. Uh, and I seek to emulate the same thing. You're absolutely right. I hadn't considered uh, how radically different others' experiences would be with that kind of tolerance. It's totally true. I mean, you do talk about it in one chapter, like which I I you have a section where you kind of make. F- make gentle, perhaps fun, of Silicon Valley's, like, fetishization of, like, failure is good and how they're not really talking <laughs> about failure, right? Um, right. But that, that's actually where I started to think about, like, yes, yeah, you know, some of us are allowed to, quote, unquote, fail, right? Although those, they're never really failures. They're just iterations, you know? And then others of us can't even have iterations. But I'm glad you see that. We don't have to dwell on it. I, I actually yeah. want to kind of move, pivot off of that. Because I know okay. you, you are very interested and concerned in creating a world of um, where everyone is valued, you know, where we everyone is is treated kindly, um, and you know that's I, I never shy away from the phrase social justice warrior because I always what's tell me which word in that sentence is bad, <laughs> right? I'm so right there with you. Yeah. So what are the ways that like? Your maturing as a maker and your willingness to engage with trying to do some justice in the world, are those things that kind of happen simultaneously in your life? Do you see how one thing emerged out of the other? I do. I do. I mean, so I also was, I was raised with the example of the of my father painting for hours every single day. So in my family, it was clear that spending this time working on this internal process had a real value and that it actually, it was clear that it had a moral value, that it it was a way in which my dad engaged with the world that 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 gave him a deeper insight into 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 how it worked. And as I have, as I have explored myself at the workbench and also been given this platform from which to talk about how that, how that journey works for me, and I've gotten feedback from others about their experience, um, I, I realized very early on when Jamie and I were doing interviews uh, either on stage or on the radio or on television where people would be like, how did you guys get to where you were? And I realized that all of these stories that people were telling, that that we often culturally tell about successful people are such horseshit. <laughs> uh, and so I started really early on by saying, well, one of the first things that I was lucky enough to have was to be born white and upper middle class on the East Coast to a bunch of, to a pair of bohemians. Uh, who gave me all of this tremendous latitude to screw up. I must have looked like a very bad bet for a long time, but my parents stuck by me and 
I they were right. And as a parent now, I might have I might look at myself as a kid and be like, yeah, you're going to have to figure this out on your own a little bit more. <laughs> but they stood by me. And that privilege is one of the main reasons that I am standing here today. And even still today, when I say that, I get frequent just silence from an audience because it's still so difficult for people to talk about. Mm. It's still such a such a verboten subject. I wanted to ask you about myths that won't die. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe meritocracy is one of them, that we live in a meritocracy. Oh my God. Uh and, and so what what are thing what are the myths that won't die that you went up against again and again that 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 when you try to try to kind of unveil something for people they refuse to see it i i'm starting as the scales keep falling from my eyes in in layers and layers and layers i realized what feels like way too late that one of the key myths is that we all live in a world together when the reality is we live in many, many different bifurcated worlds. And there are people who experience a completely different United States or a completely different earth than I do. And I was I was saying this to a crowd the other night and I was like, look, if you think the guy with the wheelchair is simply a guy who happens to be rolling around you really don't understand that from his frame, he lives in a, in a fundamentally different planet than you do. And it has totally different rules and it has totally different difficulties. And until we understand how radically different each of our experiences are, there's no way we're going to come to some mutual understanding because you're just going to keep on getting people saying, well, why wasn't he nicer to the cop? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten shot. I wonder if this is a good opportunity to kind of drill down on the intersection of disability and making, because I think that's a pretty exciting place. Um, because, like, I, I try to be very aware of the conversations happening in the disability activist space. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I see is often that they are, they get, you know, uh, let's say, they have, there's energy around, they get excited about times when people who aren't in from that space try to create solutions for disabled yeah. people. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And again, so a few years ago, I started doing some work with the Obama White House about promoting making around the world. And I, mm -hmm. I did a video series on my website about this. And I visited, I think over about a year, 22 different makerspaces around the country. And one of my favorite ones was uh, at the Elizabeth Forward High School uh, this, uh, this teacher got given a makerspace. She didn't know how to operate 3D printers, but she got a makerspace and she worked it out with her students, all these young female students, high school students, what to do with this makerspace. So they're learning how to use the 3D printers together. And then she took the students to a local old folks home and each student, uh, was paired up with, a uh, uh, a resident at the old folks home. And spent a semester solving a problem for that resident, either something to make the remote easier to see or a grabber for being able to reach a thing in their apartment. But each student spent time uh, discussing, iterating, and working on a solution for one of those residents. And I, I, it's amazing to me. I love this story because this teacher generated this incredible 
lesson plan just by asking her students to help her figure out how to make this makerspace work and gives them so much perspective on other people's experience, especially for like a 15-year-old girl to be talking to a 75-year-old uh, resident about their issues with their bodies. This is this is like, that's a really, really fertile frame with which to start understanding each other. And that's the place where where solutions that are wanted happen. Because in yes. case people don't know what I'm talking about, like one, if you go on Twitter, look for disabled activists talking about uh, standing wheelchairs. They are not fans. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I did not realize that. <laughs> well, because it's not like a. It's it's like this is a thing that able-bodied people think we want. Right. Right. You know. Whereas they're what we would really like. I mean, I can't speak for all of them, but this is just some of the conversation that I've seen is like cheaper, better functioning wheelchairs. Yeah. You know, like give me a durable, cheap chair that I can like, you know, that gets me around in my everyday space. And also, for instance, create don't create so don't put me so many fucking chairs, uh, stairs in the world. Right. Like (laughs) (laughs) you giving me the ability to climb stairs is not as does not solve the problem as well as not having stairs, you know, (laughs) like that's sort of this conversation that I've seen that really opened up my eyes about how to think about ability. Right. Like what I think the problem is, is is definitely not the same as what someone who's actually living with this issue is experiencing, you know, what they think yeah. the problem is. It, for some, in what you're saying, I remember reading at some point, somebody in a wheelchair was tweeting about their experience and they were like, you need to know as a ambulatory person that if I ask for your help, the last thing I want you to do is to actually grab my wheelchair and start to move it mm-hmm. unless I specifically ask you to. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that frame of being in a in a chair that rolls and having somebody move it without you knowing. Mm. And I started to realize how absolutely fucking destabilizing that could be. And again, it was like that, oh, right, there's what you think is helping. And then there's, again, going to where that person is with their experience and listening to them about what they need or don't need. You have a few places in the book where you kind of talk about the process of making something and the ways in which it teaches you not just about how to join, the best way to join this material and that material, but the ways that it teaches you something about the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of your stories about iterations, right, about things that you try and necessarily don't work that you've turned into kind of a narrative about iteration are very satisfying for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, d- I don't know. This is a, this is an awkward question, but there's a part of me that I, the way that I think about myself sometimes is so I'm so hard on myself. I have such low tolerance um, for myself. Yeah. Like I look at my experiences and I'm like, no, but that's a failure. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, Adam yeah. like learned something and like went on to like make the thing or be a better person or whatever. But like I just have this thing that I do wrong. Oh, no, I do both of those things all at the same time. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because part of of me is like, wow, he doesn't do that. That's amazing. No, I mean, there is. So one of the things that I, I think is really important about that exploration is 
how much I learn when I try something that I haven't tried before. So perhaps there's a way in which you've read the writing of a journalist you really loved and thought, oh, that's a frame of, of attacking a story that I hadn't considered. And you might have tried it their way and realized, okay, that's definitely not my frame. But boy, did I learn something by recapitulating what I thought as their, their format into mine to see what I could learn from it. And in that, it's like, I, I like to joke that after I saw the movie Alien, it took me five years to get H.R. Giger, the designer of the Alien, out of my system. I had to imitate his work for years before I understood what was important to me about it in order to, to, to move it through my system. That, that's on one frame of like really liking and, and sort of under, trying to understand in a physical way how, why something's interesting to me. Um, but when it comes to that, also those, those, <laughs> like one of my nightly pastimes is to go over something dumb I said, even t 25 years ago to someone and worrying about how shitty I was in that circumstance. Okay. See, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, because there's a part of me who's reading this like, wow, he's much more, this is actually, I only can say this because I know you, but I was like, wow, he's much more stable than I realized. <laughs> 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 like, I'm reading your book. I'm like, wow, like he is really well adjusted. I had no idea. No. Um, cause well, so understand that I'm the child of a therapist and I'm married to a therapist and I've also been in therapy for most of my life. So I do, I try and again, I'm trying to be gentle. <laughs> you are, and no, and you're, and you, when I say that also, one of the things I love about you is actually I know that there's that other part of you that whose hobby is what I call, I, I call that night thoughts. Like, yeah. that's just the night thoughts are like when you're laying in bed and you're like, oh, that thing and that thing and that thing. And those are the places that like when I was reading your book, I'm like, how can I use what Adam's talking about to kind of get me through these things that have been challenging me for decades? Right. Like, mm. I, I, I have like, I, this is something actually we talked about, I, I talked about in the show last week, which is that. So, like, a lot of people I've discovered, because when I talk about it, a lot of people respond, I have, you know, tape loops of very disparaging voices in my head, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they are—and sometimes they're loud and sometimes they're soft, but they're there. And they are a real—they can be a real problem for me, right? Like, what happens with those voices, like, they play a role in the, I try something new, and what do I think after that? issue because what what those voices will, will say is if I try something new, a new kind of writing, and it doesn't work out well perfectly, they'll be like, well, you're an idiot. You know, you shouldn't try that. That's just, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I actually I was talking to my therapist about this last week. I'm lucky enough to be a therapist who will let me talk about these things over and over and over. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm her, I'm, I'm, I'm his tape loop. He's a he. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I actually got teary talking to him about it because I'm like, well, I've been dealing with these voices for 30 years. Like, why can't I figure out a, like why I have a big brain? I have a problem solving brain, right? Like, yeah. what about this problem? is 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 impenetrable to me you know like i've tried positive affirmations and that kind of works you know but it's yeah. sort of treating treating the symptom i guess 
One of the things that I got from my therapist that has been really useful over the past decade, um, and after a lifetime in therapy for the last like 12 or 13 years, I've had a therapist I just really, really love and connect with. And that's been so important. He, uh, he loves to tell me that those coping mechanisms that I, that I have, that I get so upset about, about my social anxieties and the ways in which I can monopolize or derail a conversation in the social circumstances, he loves to point out to me that they all come from coping mechanisms for survival when I was a kid. And that at the point at which I came up with that coping mechanism, it was a brilliant solution to get me through that moment in time, just never afterwards. But as somebody who's, who's lived this kind of magical thinking that as long as I do all these things perfectly, everything will go smoothly, I still can't shake that feeling that there must be some formula that, uh, that I could have control over to make things go more smoothly, right? Like that's my... That's the thing I can never shake. Yeah. It, yes. And I, I so that is another strategy. So there's positive affirmations. There's kind of the strategy where you sort of make friends with the voices and like tell them to leave. I've heard that before. Like you mm-hmm. were very useful, and but now you must go. <laughs> um, and but my therapist had this observation that was frame changing rather than symptom treating. Are you ready? Yeah. This blew my mind. He said, Anna. Like, what if those voices that you're hearing, that the messages of, you know, um, less than-ness, what if those are a symptom of something? What if those voices aren't actually communicating to you, you are less than, you are worthless, you are whatever, lazy? What if it's it's just like they're a fire alarm, an annoying noise that alerts you, you to You the tweeted f- about this the yeah, other yeah, day, yeah. and it also blew my mind when you did. Yeah, like, that. what if they're the fire alarm, and it's kind of meaningless, right? Whatever they're saying is meaningless. What is important is you need to find the fire. Right. Um, so it's that I know that I'm in a bad mental frame when I'm driving around and everyone's an asshole. Right. It's, it's like that, yes. Like, it's telling you something, and it's... Funny because, like, for me, like that's a oh, that's an obvious one. Like, I can totally see that. But for some reason, yeah. these messages and voices, I've just had like it's just been like I said, I've <laughs> I just got so frustrated because thinking of them as a problem that I couldn't solve. But it turns yeah. out they're not the problem. <laughs> right. It's the, so, so have you have you watched that um, Brene Brown uh, Netflix special yeah. yet? Oh, no, not the Netflix special. No. Oh, it's really, really wonderful. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge fan of hers. And she has this thing she discusses that she and her husband do with each other when they're trying when they're in conflict. They came to this phrase of saying. The story I'm telling myself is X. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, each of them takes responsibility for the frame that they're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems really germane to what you're talking about in that frame shift of this is right. This is the sound of an alarm. It's it's not in it's not important in and of itself. Yeah. I, I can't express like how like much that it just changed everything. Like it just it just meant that I experienced these messages in a slightly different way now, you know, like right. 
still, habits are hard to break. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. But there's a way. I, I think it also does it, that sort of it, it pulls it brings you up a level. Right. It brings it that that abstract. For me, one of the key aspects of my mental health is when I can abstract and 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 go and watch the watcher, mm-hmm. watch myself and see what I'm actually doing. And that perspective of, yeah, this thing I'm upset about, the facts of it aren't what's important. What's important is that I'm getting upset about this thing is such a frame shift. You're right. It's like when you tweeted it, I was like, oh, that's really lovely. Mm-hmm. I, I spoil like I, 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 uh, I spoiled my my own talk with you. Like I should have given a spoil. <laughs> I really like, you know, that's like the end game reveal or something like that was going to be my big like, but no, like, you already read my tweet about it. So <laughs> you gave me a couple of days to think about I it. Know. I really appreciate okay, that. <laughs> okay. That's, oh, you changed the frame. Look at that. Look at that. Yay. SoFi is the leading student loan refinancer in the United States. They have refinanced hundreds of thousands of student loans, and 98% of SoFi members would recommend SoFi to a friend. It's fast. It's easy. It's all online. Check your rate in two minutes, then lock in that fixed low rate with one simple monthly payment. Refinancing your student loans could save you thousands. So join SoFi. Because it's not just about refinancing your loans, you also get exclusive benefits to help you get ahead with your money, your life, and your career. They have awesome member experiences like cocktail hours, free tickets to shows, sporting events, and more. Also, access to a complimentary career coach to help you get that next promotion or raise. So check your rate in two minutes on SoFi.com slash friends. That's S-O-F-I dot com slash friends. SoFi Lending Corp. CFL number 6054612. Do you know what the worst sound in the world is? It's your alarm clock if you haven't gotten enough sleep. No matter how much you love that song on your phone, when it wakes you up in the morning, you just want it to stop. We just got blackout drapes in our bedroom, and they are lovely. They are miracle workers. They are really, really great for this time of year when it stays light until 10 o'clock at night. Like, we can close them, and it's, like, already bedtime, right? They also mean it's really hard to get up in the morning because it's dark. <laughs> and the light just doesn't come in, and I I just have been sleeping, oversleeping a lot lately. Now imagine this scenario. The surface temperature of the bed gradually adjusts to wake you up gently and naturally, without the sound of the alarm, without light coming through the window. Imagine now waking up, rested and alert, and turning the light on at your convenience, not, you know, when nature says. This isn't science fiction. This is the new pod by Eight Sleep. The Pod by 8sleep is a high-tech bed designed specifically to help you achieve optimal sleep fitness. And there's a reason why Time Magazine calls 8 one of the best inventions of the year. It combines dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to enhance your rest and recovery. It learns your sleep habits and adjusts the temperature automatically. That means if you like the bed cool and your partner likes the bed warm, you can have both at the same time. And no more alarm clocks. 
Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they will refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. They have already sold out of their first two batches, so they are going fast. Now, for a limited time, get $150 off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash friends. That's 8sleep.com slash friends for $150 and free shipping at E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash friends. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash friends. We're kind of winding down. Um, We could try to fill in the last few minutes we have with talking about deadlines. (laughs) Oh, let's do, let's totally do that. Nice. I like that when the time is short. Because um, your relationship to deadlines, again, I say as someone who's dealt with deadlines um, professionally for 20 plus years, I still have not made peace with them. I am, I just, oh boy, like they make me itch. Um, they cause me anxiety. As you know, I was late to this taping. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about changing frames around deadlines. Because the way you think about deadlines is like, I want to think that way too. Okay. And as the full caveat here, my publisher would think it's hilarious that I have a chapter on deadlines, given (laughs) how many I missed in the (laughs) delivery of this book. Okay. That makes me feel better. Go on. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I had to get, I had, he had to send me a couple of actually upset emails um, in order to bring me back into the fray. Um, That being said, yeah, there's a way in which I experienced deadlines when I started working in commercial special effects that made me see something I had not realized before, which was when push comes to shove and all of a sudden a deadline is really looming and you you have to start pruning what can get done by the deadline. The frame that I love is the the clarity that a deadline can bring to a project because each thing you're debating, whether or not it's worth the time to expend prior to the deadline, the question that needs to get asked is, is this action of the essence of the project or is it ancillary to the essence? And that is such a useful, fascinating way to, as I say in the book, lop branches off the decision tree. And there's a there's a clarity to that that I find really invigorating. And I watched Jamie Heineman do it on set. I watched a rig that he had spent a week building fail in the morning when it had to work by the end of the day. And he simply calmly presented the director with three other options and delivered on them in the exact amounts of time that he said they would take once they picked one. Uh, and again, he was simply asking himself, the essence of this is that I get this thing done by the end of the day and it gets in the can. So let me... I'm not going to be emotional about it. I'm not going to beat myself up about it. We're just going to get this done and we can deal with the fallout later. And of course, you know, one of the hallmarks of 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 being a perfectionist, let's say, is um, that I read that chapter and I was like, oh, yeah, but my problems are different. (laughs) (laughs) My my deadlines are are realer than that. And writing is so much different than like making a fucking thing, whatever. I wish I wish I just made things because right. Because some part of me is like, oh, yeah, that I could do that. But um, (laughs) I actually made myself think about that way of think, like think about how I might apply that frame to writing, which is where I experienced most of not surprisingly, where I experienced most of my anxiety and procrastination mm-hmm. around deadlines. And I was like, okay, what if, and this is an old idea, and it's something you actually mention in the book, but 
again, sort of slightly new frame for me. What if the thing I give up, if I'm like, a, you know, 12 hours away from a deadline on an essay and I'm just like staring at the blank screen, what if the decision tree I lop off is it's going to be good? Like, <laughs> mm. what if I just decide, you know what, you've spent a lot of time thinking about this and you don't have a necessarily an idea you feel is up to your standards. You're just going to have to go with the idea that you have. Right. You're just going to have to go with what you have here. And it's, you know, you made all the other choices to, to have only 12 hours. And here we are at 12 hours to go. You're going to have to write. Just write. Just go. You need you have words. You need to give your editor words. <laughs> well, and it it sounds I mean what you're describing there is the is the is the feeling I mean it happens at the it happens in every endeavor of like am I do I have enough of a point of view to get this across the line? Right. And party's like maybe I don't. Okay, let's just <laughs> but I'm still being, Yeah. But I, let's just see how it works, right? Like that's actually maybe the way the the, the I, I've always, you know, I've been thinking for the past few years about the ways that being able to be curious about your life and your world and your experience is a way of of lifting judgment in all kinds of ways. So if my essay is a soapbox, you know, derby racer, right? Right. And I feel like I have I have built I do, I I've see I see all the plywood in front of me and I'm like. I don't have a really good idea about how this is going to work. This is going to be shitty, but I'm going to like put some yeah. wheels on it. It's going to have four wheels and someone can sit on this platform and I'll just see if it, it runs. I'll just push it and see if it crosses the line down there. And it might. <laughs> and it might. So to let you know, there's not a single build that I do on nearly any front. In which at some point during the build, I become despondent over the fact that I don't think I have enough of a point of view to get this done. Mm. Um, that that feeling, I mean, it was, you know, I spent five years at Industrial Light and Magic. And when I finally got there in my early 30s, I had built this uh, a roster and a, a, a resume that made that really did prepare me for the incredible work that they were doing up there. And even still over five years, there wasn't a single build I was doing that I didn't expect someone to come out and go, it's time for you to go home. Mm. Uh, and when you're talking about being kind in that frame, um, I was listening to a Tara Brock meditation the other night and she talks about, it was specifically about self-criticism. And she had this thing she said at the beginning, which was when you're looking when you're examining places over the last week that you've been self-critical, try and hold the remembering of that in a in a wise and forgiving frame. Mm. And that was really, really useful to me. It, it codifies something that when I'm at my best does happen at the bench that I realize this is part of the process. Okay, I'm going to feel shitty for a while and got to kind of muscle through this. Maybe I just clean the shop now and I'll come back tomorrow. Uh, but that that ability to have a meta shift on myself and say, okay, self-critique is something that I do. It's going to happen. I don't have to get upset at myself for doing it and add one more layer to it. I can actually just stop it right here and witness it with this, with a little bit of, with what I'm hoping feels like a little bit of wisdom. I want to give people 
um, one more of your gifts before we close, uh, which is this idea that when we when we do have to leave a project um, imperfectly, when we when our soapbox, you know, derby racer does not make it past the line, you can have a conversation between your current self and your future self about it. Yeah. I I love that conversation. There's there's a way in which I, I realized a long time ago, I, I think I was like in my early 20s when I was like, wow, five years ago, I was really full of shit. Oh my God, I'll bet the same will be five years from now. Oh my God, this process repeats itself throughout my whole life. <laughs> But it's a, but it's a, you're and, you're a little gentler. But the kind of conversation I'm talking about is is the gentleness, right? Is the kindness? Yeah. No. 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 So that was that's the, right. But and from the other side, I realized that if I that like when I sweep up the shop, it is a conversation between present me and future me, and I am I am letting future me have a really nice morning tomorrow morning by coming into a clean shop. And there is that way in which yeah, I'm making that meta. I'm making that jump to watch myself in order to provide a little bit of succor for future me so that they can come in and have a, a an easier morning of being able to walk into a shop where everything's in its place and doesn't need to be cleaned up from yesterday. But the part that I loved about that was like the times that you have to leave the shop without cleaning up and how you well, talk to the, yourself that's about the, that. That's the, my, uh, that was the rhetorical finish of the book that made me so happy when I realized it. Of course, because... I fail at that all the time. I fail at cleaning up the shop at the end of the day all the time. Uh, just like anybody else, it happens. And yeah, I try to be a little, I, you know, I'm trying to be gentle with myself. So I realize, no, it's just going to take a little extra time this morning. It's not going to be a habit. And future me says, that's okay. <laughs> we, we can accommodate that one too. <laughs> all right. I'm going to let future me take it from, from here on out. Um, Thank you so much, Adam. This has been oh, this is lovely. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Uh, I like I said, this cast is one of my safe spaces, specifically because of the radical inclusion and and forgiveness that you that you engender and talk about and open up and discuss. Uh, it's the it's to me it's the only conversation. It's the it's the most important conversation we can have with ourselves and with each other. Can make it really hard for me to cut the compliments, Adam. Jeez, like, <laughs> like we normally leave cut out all the praise, but you're making it difficult. Maybe I'll leave it in this time so people can know that that that's hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. No one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got time for all that traffic, parking, and lugging your mail and packages? It is a hassle. And that is why you need Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts that you can't get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print out official U.S. postage 24-7, any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, you just hand it to your mail carrier and drop it in a mailbox. It is that simple. 
With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. That is a real steal. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder that over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, my listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends. Again, that's Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. Patrick Murphy was found guilty of murder by a jury in McIntosh County, and a judge sentenced him to death. Oklahoma, 1999. A man stabbed on the side of the road, left to die. This murder would set the stage for a Supreme Court battle over the reservation of five Native American tribes, including mine. A man convicted of first-degree murder will no longer face a death sentence after an appeals court ruled the state of Oklahoma can't prosecute him. This isn't a story about who Patrick Murphy killed. It's about where he did it. Patrick Murphy says the state can't prosecute him because the murder happened on his tribe's reservation. Oklahoma argues that reservation no longer exists. This summer, the Supreme Court will decide the future of half the land in Oklahoma. Every tribe has sovereignty, and this is not given to us. It's within us. My name is Rebecca Nagel, and I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. You're listening to This Land from Crooked Media. In this podcast, we're going to go way back to the Trail of Tears, the story of how my people came to Oklahoma, to the story of my family, the treaty they signed, and why they were killed for our land. This case has involved mistakes. And the agent that was in charge of it somehow just got the location wrong by about a mile and a half or so. And the Trump administration. There was pressure from oil and gas interests in Oklahoma that encouraged them to intervene quickly also scare tactics. That's 155 murderers, 113 rapists, and over 200 felons who committed crimes against children. But for the people of my tribe and the four other tribes in Oklahoma, this case has never been about any of that. It's about our survival. We're still here. It's very important to us as a people that we, you know, have our reservation boundaries. That ties us to who we are. But nothing is guaranteed. Are they going to stick with their principles and be a court and rule in favor of Mr. Murphy and the tribes? Or are they just going to start making stuff up? Subscribe to This Land wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the family, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to be part of the Crooked family. And this is the most awkward transition ever, but speaking of family... Um, and I, I, I actually did want to ask you about this because in the teaser that we just heard, you mentioned that your family is a part of this story. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, this case is about tribal land in Oklahoma. And my ancestors are treaty signers for my tribe. So they signed our tribe's removal treaty that brought us to Indian Territory or, you know, what is now Oklahoma. 
And a lot of things have happened since my ancestors signed the Treaty of New Echota. Um, But basically, when Oklahoma became a state, it said that our reservation and the reservation of four other tribes no longer existed. And by Oklahoma becoming a state, it wiped out those reservations. And right now, there's a Supreme Court case that's about one of those reservations, the reservation of Muscogee Creek Nation. And the question is, is does their reservation still exist? Um, And what the Supreme Court could end up doing is affirming our treaty rights and affirming our land rights and basically acknowledging the fact that that land that my ancestors died for is still Cherokee land. And for it to be acknowledged um, by the U.S. government for the first time in over 100 years. It's one of those things that when you stop to think about it, it's it's one of those crimes that you you didn't even people like me like didn't even realize this was a historic crime that didn't even exist that that this could have happened that uh, that the state of Oklahoma could just declare oh no those things don't those those reservations don't exist anymore but did you grow up kind of knowing all this history that was this like a background for you yeah i mean i would say like my grandmother was very proud of um the ridges and who my family are and if if you know about cherokee history you know you know who major and john ridge are and i i was raised to be very proud of their sacrifice and what our family did and to and to understand um that what is important is the existence and the sovereignty of Cherokee Nation and that that's that's what they were protecting um, by signing that treaty. And so, yeah, I mean, I think before I had an understanding as a kid about, you know, big before I before I had the context of history that I could put it in, I knew I knew what my ancestors had died for and what it meant to my family, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think that that's just important to hear. You know, um, that there's this whole kind of way of growing up that that a lot of people can't understand that, like, a, it's part of your family's story that this land is something you fought for. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's I, I also want to talk a little bit about the, the language that we use around this, um, because what this case is about is not about returning land. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's a really important point and an easy mistake for people to make. Like, I think people can hear about, you know, a court case and we're talking, I mean, if you take the reservations of all the five tribes that could be impacted by this case, it's like half the land in Oklahoma. And you're like, oh yeah, that should definitely be given back to the Indians. Like, so much of their land has been taken from them and it's so wrong and we should give it back. And that's actually not the question here at all or the legal issue. So it's not about giving land back. It's not about land being returned. The fact is, is that this land legally, technically, has never stopped being ours. And so Congress has a way to take land from Indians, and they have done it a lot throughout history. And that just didn't happen here. And so um, that's the dispute is, did Congress ever disestablish Muscogee Creek Nation's reservation? And the answer is no. It's just that the state hasn't acknowledged the land rights of our tribes, which is actually, I mean, I think people would think that that's a really rare and re- weird thing to happen, but it actually happens to tribes a lot. And so it's really important that the Supreme Court follows the rules of that it has it itself established of like when a reservation exists and when a reservation doesn't exist because those rules don't only protect the land rights of tribes in Oklahoma but they protect the land rights of tribes everywhere in the United States 
I mean, it seems rare and weird, except it's also totally in keeping with the way that the right. U.S. government has acted. <laughs> yeah, like it's 2019 and still happening. <laughs> it's it's also, I mean, it, to me, it speaks to just, um, you know, a level of white supremacy that every once in a while is astonishing to me. It, it shouldn't. But to, to, to do these things without any kind of legal basis, right? Like the presumption yeah. of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest themes, I think, in the podcast is that, you know, as long as the United States has been creating laws about the rights of tribes and Native Americans, it's been breaking them. And so, I mean, that's one of the things that we're up against at the Supreme Court is that very often the court doesn't follow its own precedent and its own rules when it comes to tribes and just kind of make stuff up to do what's convenient for, you know, the non-native residents in Oklahoma or, you know, oil and gas interests or whatever kind of money interests have to do with the case. And so um, I think it's important for people to realize that that is still going on. And speaking of of this sort of still going on, I wonder, this case has gotten some national attention. I've read a little bit about it. Do you feel like there's some momentum on your side? I I'm hopeful. I mean, I think if we, you know, if you want to just get down to brass tacks and talk about like can the tribe win? Um because the lower court uh Muskogee Creek Nation won in the 10th circuit. And so if it's a 4-4, uh Justice Gorsuch is sitting out. Um so if it's a 4-4, um we win. And so that's uh we just have to get the four liberal justices to stick together. The thing that's actually really scary about that hope or that prediction is that um when it comes to Indian rights, Justice Ginsburg is not a reliable vote Mm, at all. Interesting. And so, yeah, yeah. She, um, in a very similar case, she actually authored the decision um, against uh, tribes' treaty rights. And so, you know... Native issues are this interesting area where I think a lot of people are used to sort of this liberal conservative split. And it doesn't always work that way for American Indians. Um, And I think part of what happens at the Supreme Court and in these cases is that so few people pay attention to federal Indian law. And, you know, oftentimes these cases outside of Indian country are just happening in a vacuum Um, you know, lawmakers can kind of do whatever they want or, you know, um, justices can do whatever they want. And there's not a lot of feedback or pushback on that. There's not a lot of public pressure for, you know, our lawmakers to do the right thing. Yeah, I feel like the invisibility portion of this is the thing that I want to keep coming back to. The the Native peoples are, I mean, they are disappeared in our popular, like in our culture. Like these issues just tend to not you know, unless something really terrible happens, right, uh, we tend to not even see things happening in literally, like, I almost use the phrase our own backyard, but it's not even our yard, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that in this country, we're taught to see racism as, you know, when a group of people are treated as different or as less than, and we're not taught about the racism that occurs when a group of people are not seen at all. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what's that's what's happening to Native people right now in this country, you know? And, and it's, it's, there's a cruel irony to it because, you know, we, we survived genocide. We survived assimilation. We are still here only to live in a country that basically pretends like we're not. And so if people want to follow your podcast, if they want to listen, how do they subscribe? I assume it's just, you know, subscribe. (laughs) 
Yeah. So um, people can check out the podcast at thislandpodcast.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And it would be awesome if people can subscribe, leave us a review um, and help just, you know, all of that helps other people find the podcast. And this important story that not a lot of people are talking about, it helps it get further out there in the world. Yeah, my hope my hope for this is that people, ha- it starts a conversation, you know, like, and although that sounds really like weird and like wishy-washy, like. <laughs> no, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like on most issues when people are like, we just need to talk about it. I'm like, shut up. We need to do stuff. Like, what do you mean talk about it? And then with Native issues, I'm like, actually, like where we're at is edu- like public education. You know, like we just we do need to have a moment of people having a greater awareness of this because there, you know, there's some very basic sort of like Native rights 101, like what is a federally recognized tribe? What is sovereignty that are basic to our rights that I think most people don't know. And it's not an individual person's fault. Like the reasons for that are systemic. But at the same time, for us to be able to um, fight for our rights in Congress, fight for our rights at the Supreme Court, we need a public that understands what those things are. I think you're going to get you're going to start one. I hope. (laughs) I hope that it helps. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And that is it for the show. I will close with a final reminder to subscribe and review Rebecca's podcast. I know you haven't listened to it yet, but people, you know, they're fans. They review stuff early. You've heard her. You've heard the trailer. It premieres on June 3rd. You can subscribe to it anywhere you get podcasts or at thislandpodcast.com. And until next week, take care of yourselves. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.